So we've been saying that from uh, for a number of reasons, uh, it might be helpful at times to uh, adopt or enter a perspective that recognizes that the imaginal or an imaginal perception or sensing with soul um, is actually uh, constituted um, uh, from with different um, elements that are interrelated or different aspects and to investigate a little bit and to see what is involved there, what are those elements and aspects um, of this uh, imaginal constellation. And um, exploring in this way, bringing this perspective and then kind of looking a little closer and teasing things apart, um, even if that apartness is somewhat artificial um, and looking a little closer, is for the sake of increasing our understanding, um, filling out our conceptual framework, um, also increasing and developing our sensitivity and our discernment. Um, to actually be sensitive to these things and notice these things and our attentiveness and our attunement, our capacity to attune to them and feel their different qualities and modes and aspects, etc. Um, but it's also useful and helpful to uh, <coughs> adopt and explore this perspective because of um, the potential for practice in, uh, as I said, uh, igniting um, the imaginal, entering more fully into the mundus imaginaris, the imaginal world, moving along that spectrum of um, imagination experiences, moving more along that spectrum towards the fully, authentically, or genuinely imaginal. So we can say, uh, again, that an imaginal perception or perceiving imaginally or sensing with soul um, is actually uh, involves, a, call it a constellation or a lattice of elements, of aspects. And any star in that constellation or any node in that lattice, um, uh, its triggering can trigger or ignite or infect, if you like, the whole lattice. Um, so, for example, it might be <coughs> um, that um, seeing the self, seeing myself, yourself, seeing the self as angel um, is what kind of occurs first, or we notice first, or what actually ignites first in the experience. Um, and then this seeing the self as angel, as part of the whole larger constellation of imaginal experience at that time, then ignites the sensing of um, other world and eros, um, imaginally, erotically, theophanically, etc. So it might actually happen... Um, in time, it might be that we uh, that, that actually they get ignited, or it might be actually that there's a noticing that happens in time, one and then the other and then the other. Um, or the first to ignite, or the, so to speak, the door that opens first, the, uh, the node um, <coughs> to resonate first with, uh, with Eros and imaginally to resonate 
erotically and imaginary with might be the humility of the heart will come back to this um, the sensitivity awareness of the energy body we've touched on that already it might be um, uh, the middle way of the imaginal actually sensing that middle way this kind of neither real nor not real quality it's related to the middle way of emptiness but it's different it's what I call the imaginal middle way or the middle way of the imaginal the theatre like quality or status of what is what is occurring what is being experienced the perceptions involved or it might be uh, an idea or conception that's involved in this um, perception, or we start with an idea or conception, and this starts, um, as I said, uh, infecting, inflaming, igniting, triggering, opening the other nodes in the lattice. When you start with an idea or a conception, uh, it's implicit there. Or we start with um, the eros, or some part of the whole uh, multi-directed eros that is flowing, that is alive in the self-other world uh, relations there. Might be we start with the sense of deep value, that that is the first door to open, the first uh, to be ignited in our consciousness. And the sense of deep value or treasure of what we are perceiving, or some aspect of what we are perceiving, some pole of what we are perceiving. It may be uh, a sense of the divinity, or um, uh, a theophany, again, of some aspect of perception. Or it may be the very sense of participation uh, with or within that sense of divinity. It's that sense of participation that then inflames the whole constellation, the whole lattice, makes it burn more brightly, makes takes us deeper into the imaginal. So an awareness or one or some of the different connecting nodes in the lattice allows us to um, uh, to try different things, um, if you like, to trigger or ignite um, the constellation. Um, to ignite the imaginal experience, to enter further into the mundus imaginalis, the imaginal world. But as I said, it might sometimes we can jiggle and wiggle one node and actually do something there to support that particular uh, star or node igniting and illuminating. And sometimes it's more a matter, a matter more precise um, and helpful to recognize that what we are doing at times is rather than changing anything, is just noticing some aspect that is already aflame, already ignited. And it's this noticing, this attention that allows that that node to ignite further and more fully and deeper, and then the whole lattice to get ignited, um, triggered um, from that. Either simultaneously, the whole the whole lattice, the whole imaginal constellation kind of um, illuminates at one point, like a, like a light switch going on, or gradually, kind of node by node. And this is quite interesting too. When it ignites uh, the whole thing, or, or turns on, if you like, becomes uh, uh, 
alive imaginally that when the whole lattice ignites simultaneously um, it, it can feel like something just took a quantum leap um, so, so from one discrete state to another um, it's like a sudden jump of, of uh, a system if you like this system of nodes and lattice to, to a different state so it's something uh, that can feel really like whoa we, we just we just suddenly shifted gears there um, into, a, into a really different state of perception, of consciousness, of being, um, and a different uh, experience. Now, we haven't talked much, uh, and, and we won't talk much yet, um, and maybe perhaps for quite a while, about actually working in a dyad with another intensely um, with the soul making and the imaginal perceptions that involve each other and being in participation and dialogue and reciprocal uh, relationship um, in in that erotic imaginal diet but um, sometimes what can happen I'm just mentioning this but sometimes what can happen is that quantum leap happens not just for one person but for a whole field uh, of two people or, or sometimes more it's like the whole field and the whole in this case if we're talking about dyad and both people suddenly undergo that quantum leap there's some kind of almost magic of, of a shared uh, entry or a shared um, inflaming or illumination of the imaginal together um, again, there's a, well, we won't dwell on that but um, and at the same time, I already mentioned this, it's good to recognize um, that where there is Eros in the imaginal, um, there is always, and we'll come back to this too, a sense of grace, of gift. And with that, therefore, there must be a sense of receptivity. We receive gifts, we receive grace, we open to it, we, it is bestowed on us. And so, if it's grace and gift uh, that we are Receiving that means that the quality of receptivity, the stance, the poise, the uh, posture, uh, the inner posture of receptivity um, uh, and of sensitivity and flexibility and attunement are necessary. It's as if we um, notice the gift, we pick up on the grace. On, on the breeze, so to speak, our antennae, so to speak, are moved, our receptors are moved, and they're, ah, what is that? Something on the wind, something on the breeze, uh, a, 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 uh, an intimation, a fragrance, and, and we uh, tune to it, cock our heads to it, turn towards it, open to it, to receive it. So there's this real element of... Um, as a grace gift, no one uh, knows next where the spirit bloweth. Uh, to quote roughly uh, Jesus. Um, and so it's not completely in our control. We don't completely direct this. There is an element of uh, technical art and skill and deliberateness and br bringing images back deliberately and deliberately supporting this or that gently and working with that and responsiveness but there's also this element of um, of grace of openness of receptivity sensibility flexibility and attunement that's part of the, um, the these qualities are part of the imaginal constellation as well
it's not just about technique, but it does involve technique. It's never totally under my control and mastery. Recognizing that fact um, is is humbling, um, but it also, to me, makes it more beautiful. I said this before. Soul is greater than ego, is greater than me, greater than you. Um, but again, we have a conception or an approach or an attitude that kind of straddles two uh, modalities or two inclinations. The inclination to receive and the inclination to be deliberate and active, proactive, uh, uh, a kind of mastery, etc. Where, where we're straddling and including those. There's space here, flexibility, range. Okay, a little bit more about this uh, process or dynamic of what we might call ignition or turning on or uh, uh, illuminating the imaginal, the imaginal becoming illuminated. To talk about these nodes and elements uh, of the imaginal constellation, but it's not just that they're kind of um, like on-off settings, um, this element of humility or this element of eros is either on or either off uh, just like an on off switch um, they are also uh, at times at least more like again spectra or kind of dimmer switches instead of a flick on off switch a dimmer switch you know you turn the lights up or down in the middle like or a volume switch on a on a um, cd player or whatever it is um, uh, or, or like a fire, if each is a kind of individual fire, that it's not simply on or off. I mean, that's one way of looking at it, but it's also like a degree. Is it just a kind of uh, uh, an ember, or is it uh, really uh, flaming, or really kind of a raging fire? Well, that's maybe a too clumsy an analogy, but it's a, at least it's more passive than a switch, which is something that we switch, switch on or off. So this kind of idea of suddenly sparking or uh, the ignition of one node triggering or igniting suddenly um, the sparking of other nodes or elements, that's, that's, a, that's a good way. And that actually um, can convey this sudden change of state, this kind of quantum leap that can often occur here. But at other times, the transition, as, as, as I mentioned earlier, is actually more gradual. So it's like dials or faders uh, moving um, moving, more, you know, higher or lower up their scale, more or less on or off, and we can we can actually actually actively turn any one of them up by simply noticing or paying um, careful, kind of gentle, attuned attention to that element. Um, Perhaps then the whole lattice is gradually turned up. The whole imaginal constellation gradually turns up with that. Or sometimes at a certain threshold of tuning out one of the elements, there is a sudden ignition of all the others. So all kinds of um, kind of transitions are possible here, or developments are possible. One more, one more little thing with that. Um, so all this that I'm talking about, we're really talking about developing the art or the skill of imaginal practice or of sensing with soul. Um, uh, in time, as that 
skill or art develops and the whole range of what's involved there because um, it's really a collection of all kinds of things that are that are implicit and required for imaginal practice and we may find that we can even kind of uh, guide the relative balance of the settings of any two or maybe even more of these kind of dials if you like that uh, that uh, image of it. So for example, um, uh, the attention to the energy body is one of those nodes, is one of those dials if you like, and the attention to it can um, modulate from anywhere like, uh, from say just a background minimal awareness to a kind of complete immersion in in the, in the sense of the energy uh, the sense of the energy body, the whole energy body, the, the awareness is completely immersed in it. Um, that energy body awareness, where it is on its scale, relative to the attention to the image itself. You understand? So here's this image, whatever it is, and here's my sense of the energy body, and I've got basically both of them, um, awareness and attention to both of them in imaginal practice. And the relative degrees... Of, of where the attention is weighted more or less, we can vary that. So I can lean it back, so to speak, um, in into the awareness of the energy body, more of the energy going there, and more of the you know sensitivity there and what's experienced there. And and I might go so far as into a jhana. I can kind of lean so far into the um, the kind of pleasure that's going on in the energy body that it. Um, that I actually enter a jhana, and the image is either completely gone, or, or uh, uh, you know, in in the background, or vice versa. The energy body is more. I'm just I'm aware of it, but it's the primary thing I'm paying attention to is the image. And there's a whole gradation there of relative weighting of the attention and the emphasis of the attention. And and similarly with the emotion, uh, you know, we we can give. Uh, what's emotionally maybe an image brings with it some kind of poignancy or a particular kind of loneliness or a sort of particular kind of loving and being loved, whatever it is, or sadness or uh, joy or a particular kind of delight. And again, we can lean into that um, if we want to uh, in time much more than the image while still keeping the image around. Or we may just, so to speak, completely lean into the, an exploration and a being with and a holding with the of the emotion going on and let the image kind of fade. And vice versa, we can be much more with the image of some other aspect of the imaginal constellation and just, just, just aware of what's going on uh, with our uh, emotions in the emotional body, etc. And similarly with other aspects, the emptiness aspect, we can, we can, in other words, we can play with the relative emphasis of attention or leaning of attention or weight of attention on any of these different elements. Um, so I don't know how that sounds. It might sound to you, boy, that's really advanced or whatever. And um, Certainly it takes practice to develop that, that kind of facility and flexibility and kind of nuance of uh, uh, art and attention. But it's similar in many ways. Some of you will know, I think I used at one point, um, the analogy of uh, a great hawk or eagle gliding on air currents. And as a, as a sort of 
image or symbol for how one can move really quite gracefully and with sometimes with a real minimal effort um, between, say, an insight uh, mode of working, a way of looking, and the samadhi that kind of organically comes with the letting go that comes from the inside. So just like this hawk is riding high on the warm air currents, and if it wants to go left, it's just the slightest movement. It's sensitive to what currents are already there, what thermals, what, what directions of wind. It can just pick the one with a, uh, that's going left, if it wants to go left, for example. And, and just, just a slight inclination uh, sends it that way. It's using what's already, this hawk is, is riding on what's already present. And similarly, if it wants to go right, it's just a slight uh, inclination, a slight modification. There's a real beauty and, and gracefulness and art um, to that. And one, one develops, again, it's all part of developing the sensitivity in practice and the attunement. And uh, there can be, there's so much possible here. Uh, if it sounds outlandish, it, it, it isn't. It, it does take probably takes time and, and practice and develop uh, to develop but but it's certainly possible okay so if we continue a little bit with our list now we've already mentioned um, let's see the first one was the energy body awareness and we said a little bit uh, we said a little bit of the second one was just the fact of giving rise to soul making the sense of soulfulness and soul making happening so soulfulness as an experience uh, is another, the soulfulness of what's going on is another element. Um, the third we mentioned was uh, loving and being loved, and we said about the particularities there and the attunement there. And so with that, with, with the, with that third element, um, really to tune in and to feel that particularity and to let it touch you, let this being loved Touch your being, touch the heart, feel it in the body, feel it in the soul, etc. Uh, and we also said that in in the the range of what it what that those loves can um, uh, how they can manifest um, in, in in imaginal perception in sensing with soul is really really large. So. Yes, absolutely. It includes metta. It includes compassion. At times, it includes includes, includes mudita, um, etc. But um, excuse me. Also, we should say equanimity. So it includes the classical brahmaviharas, but there's much more um, particularity in the kinds of love, and the range is actually larger than what we tend to think of with the brown Baharas, um, whose range is also quite wide, because there's different flavors of metta, of course, and all that. Um, okay, and so a fourth element, um, or node in the, in the imaginal constellation, is Eros. Now, I've talked a lot about Eros before, um, but... So won't won't go into it much, just mentioning it there. Again, it's something we can notice, tune into, and that noticing and tuning into um, uh, it, it ignites it further, and then that can trigger the, the rest of the lattice, take us further into the imaginal, deeper into the more authentically, fully imaginal. And and we also said, you know, for example, um, 
being in relationship with more of my the whole of my energy body and the sensitivity of the energy body um, is likely to support uh, eros opening rather than craving and the contraction of craving is going to support the opening of eros so eros feels like an opening it also uh, opens it opens the imaginal etc we've been through all this on other retreats so I'm not going to um, go into it much now at all but all this presupposes that I'm able to notice Eros, that I'm actually familiar with the experience of Eros. And again, I'm not going to delineate everything that's involved in the experience of Eros. We've done that before. But that also may take some practice. Like, oh, this is Eros present. What is the, um, how do I recognize Eros? Am I familiar with it? And then I can kind of hone in on it more, or open up to it more, etc. Allow it more. All that that supports the uh, that particular element or aspect or node. So eros is very important in distinction to craving. As I said craving um, is a contraction, and it contracts. It it limits. Uh, and contracts the possibility of soul making. Eros is more of an opening, and uh, and it opens uh, all the dimensions of the possibilities of soul making. So it's really that that makes a difference here. Um, um, but I've also talked about a fifth, um, or actually no, it would be lost numbers now. Yeah, I think the fifth um, uh, element might be beauty. A sense of beauty um, is is an aspect of the imaginal constellation, but um, just like love, um, the range of beauty that we can feel touched by and feel open to is huge. So, oftentimes, like with love, we tend to kind of box in a little too narrowly our sense of what qualifies as beautiful or what beauty is, what it looks like, or sounds like, or uh, whatever. Um, huge range here. Be, be surprised at the range that, that beauty can have for us, our, our sense of beauty, the things that we can find beautiful. And again, I've talked quite quite a bit about beauty and uh, I've also written about it recently so I'm not going to go into it here um, much but just to mention it that's again uh, a factor if you like a, a node, an element, an aspect that we can tune to begin to resonate with be touched by, open to appreciate, uh, enjoy and in, in the fullness of that that node comes uh, deeper and more fully alive and that can trigger the, the other, other nodes to come alive and the fullness of, of the authentically imaginal. Now, I really have lost track of the numbers, which is a good thing because I, uh, as I said earlier, actually, if there are numbers here to the elements in the list, don't take them very too seriously. Um, or too rigidly or too tightly at all, um, you'll see that these elements kind of reflect each other, blend into each other, uh, and not that discrete. Some of them are obviously not discrete, others are anyway interconnected. But I think it might be uh, number five.
number six, sorry, sorry. Um, and this is a sense of um, what I call dimensionality. Um, it's a little hard to describe, but um, this dimensionality, it's almost as if a thing is not just flat. It has other, if you like, depths, or uh, there's more to it. And those dimensions kind of... Uh, recede or proceed into a sense, they shade into a sense at some point of divinity. Um, and again, I, I've talked quite a bit about divinity um, in the last few retreats, so I'm not going to say too much, but the uh, it's a mysterious word, isn't it, this divinity? Like, what do you really mean when you say divinity? And this is, again, one of those words that I would deliberately not put in, in too tight a box because uh, by its nature it won't fit there. Um, there are, and in addition there are infinite possibilities for the experience of divinity. We could and I have delineated certain kind of common elements, if you like, of, of experiences of divinity. Um, but it's actually, I would say, there are infinite possibilities. There is not one experience of the divine. There are in, once we get into the imag in, imaginal practice, infinite uh, experiences we can have of divinity. Um, so it's a kind of uh, word that's mysterious in a number of different ways, but for me it feels like a very important word. And, and actually, um, for most people who experience imaginal practice and actually get the flavor of it and get into it and get the sense of it, it all this makes sense. So it feels like, yes, that is the right word. I might never have used that word before um, or really related to it much, but mm, there's kind of no other word for this sense I have of this of this imaginal figure or this way that I'm sensing this um, thing in my life or this person or whatever. It has a, a sense of dimensionality, of kind of multiple dimensions to it. We may not, they may not be clear, and that dimensionality shades into a kind of sense of divinity. So the sense of divinity also is um, implies uh, a, a kind of infinite, or kinds of infinity itself. In other words, the word divinity to me implies that we can never um, exhaust it, we can never fully fathom it. So it's related to the unfathomability of objects as well of imaginal figures and objects and, and of that which is perceived when we are sensing with soul, that which is sensed with soul. Um, the divinity means that um, I can't reduce this, or it feels like this this perception, this sense of whatever it is, is not reducible um, to X or Y, or it is this, or I sum it up, or I box it in, or I understand it now. Um, there's always going to be more. There's always going to be more dimensions, more depths, more heights, if you like, um, more beyond what I can either capture with my intellect or even fully experience. So there's an inf there's always an kind of infinite and beyond element to an experience of the divine, um, but. And again, I've been through this before, but I'll say it briefly now. Um, that beyond is not 
I would say, especially when we get into imaginal practice and sensing with soul, by definition, the uh, beyondness of the divine is not only beyond appearances. In other words, the, the transcendent, uh, unfabricated, the fading of experiences, that experience. Nor is it a beyond in that it's always um, kind of lighter or more ethereal. It's somehow um, in, with, through, um, as the appearance uh, itself. So, yes, there is a sense of um, a kind of divinity, we've talked about this before, but a kind of divinity that is beyond the appearance, with the fading of the appearance, so revealing the essence of a thing, we might say. But um, there is also, in the particularities of this this appearance, there is an imminent um, divinity that has um, still a beyondness to it, and an infinity to it. Both the notions of dimensionality, or if we say depths or heights or supernality in some in some uh, traditions, the supernal, I mean the heavenly, etc. Um, notions of di- both both notions of dimensionality and of divinity have um, m- make some people very nervous, um, understandably because uh, some of the history associated with such concepts and uh, the kind of metaphysics involved, and and but particularly the implications for uh, uh, valuing what is of value and what is what is of more value and what is of less value, and what is more considered more real and less real. So th- this these two aspects, valuing and real, are tied up, or at least historically were very much tied up with notions of dimensionality and divinity, and many people felt that the sort of um, entrenched um, Western religions uh, would value the deep or the high or the transcendent over the immediate, the material, the superficial, etc. And uh, it, it's sometimes exclusively valuing one over the other with a great cost to all kinds of uh, aspects of our existence and also the valuing of the divine over the human, etc. Uh, and and then this had a reaction with humanism and scientific materialism, etc. But to me it's actually not that simple. Uh, it's quite interesting, not that simple. Um I would like to say that perhaps, in terms of um, the question of what's real, perhaps um, we can think of this notion of dimensionality, um, and to a certain extent even of divinity, um, as not so much a question of um, more real. Um, So it's not a kind of ontological Assessment. This is deeper. This is therefore more real. When we sense, when we get a sense of depth um, in some perception or, or pertaining to some figure or something that we're sensing. Um, but ra- so rather than uh, an ontological kind of claim, it's just a kind of epistemological claim. It's like it's deeper, meaning it's it's if you like harder to sense. 
the the instrument has to be opened and tuned and takes more preparation to sense, if you like, what is deeper, what is more obscure, what is less obvious, these other dimensions. So rather than, than saying they are more real or more valuable or whatever, um, actually let's just say, we, rather than saying they're more real, we're making an ontological distinction, we can just be making an epistemological distinction, acknowledging that, yeah, these these dimensions that sometimes we are graced with opening to um, are harder to sense. They take more uh, more tuning, more uh, sensitivity, etc. Um, the imaginal, uh, the nodes of the imaginal lattice have to be quite uh, empowered, turned on to enable this kind of sensing of dimensionality. And sometimes that dimensionality is um, is is kind of obscurely sensed, and sometimes more specifically sensed. So, yeah. Um, in terms of value, again, we would, I would say that um, hmm, more dimensions does include an increase in value, but because the dimensions that we're talking about here don't uh, disvalue the uh, immediate, the apparent, the form, the material, it's just that we're not um, we're not seeing that material in, in a kind of reductive way as, as uh, purely unholy and dismissing it, or purely illusion, or whatever it is. And to say that in our sense of deeper dimensionality, higher dimensionality, in our sense of divinity, that we are not um, asserting uh, ontological priority or primacy, that they are more real, or on, only that is real, only the divin- divine beyond is real, and uh, appearances are not real, to uh, n- not make an ontological assertion or claim there is slightly unusual. It's also to say, from another perspective, that... Um, Divinity is not real, nor is it unreal. This is unusual and maybe sound mysterious and very difficult for for some people for whom so much any talk of divinity, etc., goes with an assertion and a kind of hierarchy of reality and, and, as I said, also a value. And they might think... It might be quite common to think, well, how can it have power or value or meaningfulness or whatever for the soul then? How can this sense of divinity have power or value, meaningfulness for the soul, if, if you're not saying it's real or more real? It's neither real nor unreal. Well, it can. It can have power, value, meaningfulness for the soul, and it does. Some of you familiar with the um, <clears throat> emptiness teachings know about this middle way of emptiness. 
not real, not not real. And the beauty that that opens up and the transformative capability that um, opens up when we get that sense of things. So we can apply that to here and we can apply the middle way of the imaginal, which is related but slightly different. This sense of divinity that moves us so much, that has bestows and gives and opens and has for us so much value, that brings value with it kind of implicitly. This divinity we sense as neither real nor not real in the usual sense, in the usual meaning. Wonderful. Beautiful. So, perceiving, imagining, or sensing with soul involves some or other conception, whether it's clear or obscure, of the sacred or divine nature and origin of um, an image, an imaginal image, or, or whatever perceptions are involved. In other words, they are not just conceived as, um, for example, the result of my um, only human history. This image is arising because X happened to me when I was you know, much younger or whatever it is. Unless my, my actual human history is also conceived as an expression, a manifestation, a journey, if you like, of the divine which makes this image that represents it or recalls it as memory uh, or whatever, uh, also kind of divine, makes it um, have an origin in the divine. So not just that, not just a kind of result of my um, something in my brain firing either completely randomly or contingently on other sensory input or whatever. But the valuing uh, goes right through. It's not other than the appearance. Understand? I've talked a little about this, so I won't say much more now. Now, related to this um, aspect of divinity... We could say dimensionality and divinity are two elements. We could count them as one, as our, let's, I think it's sixth element. Um, or we could separate them as two. It doesn't really matter. Um, but the next one, let's say the seventh, um, grace is obviously related to the sense of divinity. And um, grace, uh, we've touched on it before, but there is this quality of being given something, of receiving something, um, uh, the, the image or the perception or the sense of um, the beauty and the divinity of this thing. It's coming from divinity and the divinity itself and the beauty of it and the, the very appearance of it, the very experience of it is sensed as gift, as given, which is different than it's, oh, how lucky, um, it's a kind of, luck means a kind of random occurrence. So the sense of grace implies some, uh, if you like, divinity or some 
greater dimension, bestowing something on us, giving us something. It's not a matter of luck, of random occurrence, nor is it arising because of my clever engineering of the circumstances. That's obviously not grace either. There's a sense of gift, of of receiving, of, of grace. It's a beautiful word. And to me it also has the word something inexplicable in it. I can't... There's something almost um, surprising in 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 opening to an image. There's an, there's an element of like, always, there's an, no matter how much you've done, there's always an element of like, wow, what a gift. Who would have... Who would have um, Ima- who would have imagined this? Who would have who would have fore- foreseen such a thing? There's something inexplicable, um, a mystery there, and a sense of um, being, as I said, given something, receiving something from something, some dimension, some divinity bigger, greater, beyond ourselves and beyond our capacities, our uh, uh, machinations, our ken. And with all that, and that that kind of gift, there's a kind of there's a sense of beneficence, of um, the 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 good, uh, the goodwill, and bounty of something pouring down on us, visiting us, being given to us. So that's another element or node um, aspect of the imaginal we can tune into. Um, very related to that is perhaps an eighth, depending on how we're counting. Uh, and I've mentioned this one before, very briefly on retreat, reverence. Reverence, obviously related to grace and uh, divinity, etc. Reverence, as I think I pointed out on that when I previously mentioned it, is uh, from a Latin word that, that kind of means to be in awe of. To be in awe of. So again, this sense of something that's kind of beyond us, beyond our ken. And reverence is a, for some people it's a it's a it's a strange word or it's a, it's a word that kind of has associations of perhaps stiffness or or a sense of should reverend you should be reverend you should be respectful and like we're being told by our author, authorities or elders or whatever to be be reverend or or whatever there's a sense of should and stiffness what i mean the sense of reverence itself when it's authentically experienced is something very beautiful um is something that has uh, a, a pliability to it the soul and the heart are pliable and again here we have reverence is, is itself a composite so it's uh, as is grace and uh, other things that will come to it involves the heart. The heart feels reverence. It involves the soul. It's more than the heart. Um, and, and it's also a kind of concept. There's a concept involved. Um, again, of something uh, of which, to which we feel awe, something bigger, greater, beyond us. We can feel uh, that reverence in the body. We feel it in the energy body. The set of kind of pliability, a certain softening, perhaps a certain opening, a certain energizing, uh, very be- beautiful quality. Where where there is eros, uh, and where there's uh, the imaginal perception, where there's the erotic imaginal, 
And Eros is allowed to do its thing in inseminating, fertilizing the Eros psyche logos dynamics so that there's soul making. Where there's the erotic imaginal, their uh, reverence is implied there, reverence is included there. It's part of the, if you like, the um, certainly the subjective pole of the imaginal constellation, an attitude, a poise, uh, a stance, an opening in reverence, something very lovely. And uh, if we go on to our list uh, related to that, this kind of constellation, you see how uh, closely related and interconnected and overlapping, actually, a lot of these um, elements are. Um, but still, I, I feel really important to draw draw them out um, and discern between them and draw attention to them. Um, so this next one, I think, is ninth or ninth and tenth, depending on how you're counting. Um, humility. Humility and also bowing. Uh, and again, they're, they're related. But... Um, so humility is another word that's kind of can be kind of loaded or um, for us in our culture, or we get a little bit narrow and stuck in in certain a certain range of meaning or a certain stiffness in relation to what it means or what it looks like. So we certainly do not mean right by humility um, any kind of self-shaming or self-blaming or self-punishing or anything that's kind of life-denying. Um, so some people, even if they don't, um, uh, you know, consciously think that's what humility means. It has those kind of echoes, perhaps from the past or dimly from some cultural associations that we have with us. Certainly not what we mean with that. It goes, um, humility goes with uh, reverence for um, uh, the other or the imaginal object and for the self. Again, the, the, the imaginal constellation spreads over self, over other self and world. So there's reverence, um, not just for the other, but to the self. Humility goes with reverence to the self. There is respect and reverence for the self included in our humility. Do you understand? We tend to think humble, uh, and we tend to think of um, a sort of belittling of the self, some, some people. But actually there's reverence for the self in the very experience of humility in the face of another, or towards another. Humility of the self with another. Uh, even more, if we go deeper into these ideas, humility, um, uh, to me, implies and involved in humility is this kind of deep, a deep and wonderful participation of the self in in the other, in the imaginal object, in the cosmos, in existence, in God. We'll come back to this notion of participation. This is a really important but subtle point. Humility doesn't... It, it, it implies a kind of participation, not an alienation, not... Um, I'm included in what I am humble towards. I somehow mysteriously and deeply participate in that uh, theophany or that divinity, that beauty that I am humble in relation to. 
again it goes with grace and with a sense of meaningfulness. So it's a, as I said, it can be a tricky word for us. Some, some of these words, and humility may be one of them for some of us. Um, partly that's cultural, historical. So often in the, in the West and with kind of secular modernism, uh, that kind of culture that's dominated by that um, ethos. Um, sometimes we don't have the humility of some other cultures or periods um, in the world. And we have a kind of, you could, you could call it a kind of arrogance instead of a humility. And there's a sense that we can do. Everything's dependent on me. If we, if we want something, we can rearrange things. We can um, fix things. Uh, we can have mastery over nature. Um, technology as that rapidly growing um, impetus and movement and desire and maybe addiction to master everything and control everything and to make everything, if you like, um, dependent on us, on our will, etc. And with all the beauty and the gifts and the, uh, the help that that brings. Um, yet somehow that lack of humility that we sometimes goes with with uh, like modern secular modernism um, gets also is, is also tied in with a kind of existation existential alienation and unrootedness of the self so the self is it, it feels kind of um, not so humble kind of more um, powerful if you like um, but at the very same time it's it it feels uh, this existential alienation, unrootedness, and the abyss of um, uh, what's supposed or um, um, assumed to be an ultimately real meaninglessness of one's existence. And that kind of forms an existential abyss of unrootedness. Yeah, you can kind of make up meanings or arrange your life to kind of give it meaning, but at the bottom of it all, we're living in a meaningless cosmos. And that abyss of existential <clears throat> meaninglessness and alienation, unrootedness, um, uh, goes kind of is the flip side or the, the 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 wages of of this kind of lack of humility. They kind of can very much go together. This presumed, ultimately real meaningless of one's existence, of one's struggles, of one's life, of one's choices. At first blush, the humility of um, a, a, another culture, say in the past or elsewhere in the world, um, it might look uh, to us less powerful, but uh, again it has a flip side um, because someone embedded in that culture might really have a sense that we don't have of, of much deeper and wider and more intimate belonging and of meaningfulness, more than just meaning, but meaningfulness to their lives that um, we sometimes don't in this dance of uh, what can be a lack of humility, an embeddedness in the cosmos, a significance and value of the self, of one's life, one's choices, one's actions, one's duties. Sometimes that's harder to earn in 
in the kind of uh, cosmic picture that we have. And so I'm not suggesting going back in a kind of primitivism to uh, to other cultures, but um, is there something here that we can bring awareness to and find ways to open up so that we don't um, we have a, a beautiful humility that uh, gives us gifts without sacrificing uh, technology completely and all that, of course. So how can we move forwards, not backwards, to um, receive more uh, healthy, soulful sense, perspective, idea of the self and of the cosmos? How can we progress towards that? But humility is implicit in the sense um, of... uh, it's implicit in the imaginal constellation it's it's implicit in the sense of the images or the imaginal figures autonomy which we'll come back to the non-reductive non-reducibility of the image the reverence the unfathomability the divinity the dimensionality humility you could say comes out of that it's implicit in that and um, if we again notice it that noticing and tuning to it and allowing it and opening to it can draw it out can amplify that uh, node um, uh, if you like encourage it um, and and perhaps even ignite it uh, further and ignite that ignites the whole mode and I mentioned bowing as well so uh, this to me is you know very again very mixed up with this sense of divinity grace reverence humility etc and bowing again for me is a very very beautiful um, beautiful stance or poise or movement of the being movement of devotion and by bowing I don't just mean a physical gesture though it may be or it may look different uh, than what we tend to think a bow looks like but something in the being is um, moved, and it may not even manifest as a physical movement, um, in, in reverence, in, in um, surrender, in, uh, in, in orientation to that sense of sacredness, in giving oneself to something. So, again, bowing is not, for instance, just... Um, it's not not just a gesture. It's also not just kind of accepting. I bow to, uh, I bow to my fate. I bow to uh, this illness or whatever. It's not just about accepting. It includes a sense of the sacredness of what one is bowing to, and and that implicit in that is the unfathomability, etc., etc., of all of all uh, what, what one is bowing to. Again, humility is, is can be for some people a slightly slightly um, awkward word or one that has kind of tricky connotations, even if it's subtly in the field, in the kind of aura or the cloud of of the word and what it might mean for us. But as we're using it, humility doesn't preclude our empowerment. So because I am. Uh, or I feel, or you feel humble, and it doesn't mean that we're disempowered. 
might mean that we, we feel great empowerment in all kinds of ways. So empowerment and humility can coexist in the experience of an image as they can coexist in life and in our in our in, our, in the relations of our life to to others and um, events and to the cosmos. But only if neither the humility nor the empowerment is identified with. Only if neither the humility nor the empowerment is identified with. So again, this kind of um, imaginal middle way is necessary so that we don't um, uh, take on the identity of the humble one and reify that as who we are and really believe that or the... Uh, empowered one, or whatever. Uh, but the point, one of the points here is humility doesn't always uh, look or feel how we typically think it looks or feels. Um, but if I amplify what we just said, actually, and just pause on that for a second. Um, Yeah, so humility, even even grace for some people, th- these kind of words are often loaded for us, and they can mean different things and be loaded in different ways, you know, depending on our past conditioning with such words. Um, but in imaginal practice, or with sensing with soul, um, these words and these attitudes, humility, grace, reverence, etc., bowing, um, that the words and the attitudes to which they refer, they, they're... they're they need to, to not be too self-weighted, too heavy with self, too focused on self, and certainly not on kind of concepts like heavy concepts like sin and the sin of the self and, and all that, um, um, and that kind of heavy, contracted, dense and, and tight fabrication of of self sense and and self story. Um, you could say these kind of words, humility and reverence and, and, and the rest, they, um, they and, and what they, uh, the dispositions that they kind of refer to, they occupy a certain, if you like, a certain region um, of the spectrum of self-fabrication. Um, in other words, too much tight, dense, solid self-fabrication in association with those words, and we, we've lost the imaginal. Um, outside of that region of that slightly, at least at least slightly lighter self-fabrication, at least slightly lighter, um, the imaginal perception, uh, the sensing the soul won't work and won't be fruitful. Um, so there's a lot here we could say about 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 this kind of thing. Um, let me say one one last thing as a kind of general point about. Um, if uh, these these cluster of notions that were humility and bowing, reverence, um, grace, um, if they are involved in soul making and imaginal practice, as as I'm saying they are, I'm kind of insisting that they are or they will become. Um, 
when they're involved with soul making, they will themselves get caught up as objects of the soul making dynamic of the eros psyche logos dynamic. Um, and so the very sense, the very experience, and the very idea of, for example, humility will expand, will stretch, will break, etc., break open and be constituted larger, etc. As we have explained about the whole process, the whole way the eros psyche logos dynamic works, when it kind of, when anything comes into its vortex, into its orbit, when anything is caught up, subsumed, involved, implicated in it, and then it comes alive as an object of soul-making. The eros-psychologos dynamic goes to work on that, that object itself. Our sense, our idea, our experience of humility, of what that means to us, of what that can be to us, of what it looks like, of what its range is, similarly with bowing and, and, and the rest of them. Um, so it will itself, whatever it is, let's talk about humility, humility will itself become image. Humility becomes an imaginal um, object and an object of eros. We start to have a, an erotic relationship with the humility that we are experiencing or that we glimpse. You understand? And the whole thing gets infused and ignited itself. Um, so... Again, we don't um, reject delineations in, in this whole conceptual framework that we're unfolding. We don't reject delineations and concepts and try to um, uh, just kind of just open and uh, be non-conceptual or whatever. But we use definitions and use delineations from from some starting point. So wherever y you are, uh, wherever that is for an individual at the moment, in your sense of, this is what humility means. And then, um, then that quality, humility or whatever it is, can develop because it gets stretched, it gets expanded, it gets busted open, it gets worked, deepened, widened, etc. by the soul-making dynamic. The very sense of that. Um, so, oh, so, sorry, the quality can develop because we're practicing it and because we're allowing it and opening to it. But then it gets a whole other kind of um, gear of uh, opening and development of the image and the idea of that very quality of, say, humility or reverence. And, and as with all soul-making, it's potentially infinite. How? What's the range? What's the limit of what that word can be and mean and feel and be experienced as by us? Like the rest of the soul-making dynamics, potentially infinite. Its range, its depth, its subtlety, its nuances, its in the individual shadings and delineations we start to make within humility as well as our relationship with it. And that gets all opened up. So like everything else in imaginal work and soul-making work, we make delineations, but those delineations that we make don't get dissolved or erased. Um, the two that we make, humility and bowing, or humility and... Uh, uh, whatever it is, non-humility, 
whatever two we make, doesn't collapse or melt into a one only, although we, we can be conscious of the kind of dimension of unity pervading everything. But rather in imaginal practice and soul-making work and that whole uh, direction, that whole opening, the delineations and the two-nesses are mostly retained, um, but as we'll come back to, but they have soft and elastic edges so they can expand, they can be stretched. And whether we're talking about two-ness of self and object or self and imaginal object or self and other self and world, or just the two-nesses of delineating between concepts. So introduce some of these words like humility, and they might sound a little awkward or unfamiliar. We're just not really used to that that kind of word, you know, or that kind of stance, perhaps. And we don't we're not really familiar with it. We don't get a flavour with it of it yet. We haven't got flavour of it yet. But as we as we um, practice with it, you start to notice that you start to get more familiar with it, you start to amplify it, you start to feel more comfortable with it, it starts to grow and develop, and then once it becomes itself an, an object of eros, once itself, it itself becomes imaginal, you have an imaginal image of this humility, of this bowing, of this, um, this poise, whatever it is, then there's an even greater development, potentially infinite development of the depth and the, the breadth and the uh, complications and the nuances of what can be involved uh, for us in that very word humility. But we start where we are. We start where we are. And it grows from there. Just through the attention, through the care, through the... Uh, gentle and, and subtle entering into the practice and responsiveness. Um, so I think, I've lost count, but uh, uh, I think a tenth uh, on our list is trust. I've, I've uh, mentioned it briefly as we ran through the list, and um, I've talked about it on previous retreats, I think, the path of the imaginal, perhaps other retreats. Um, and this is this to me is an important uh, element. Um, I pointed out before in other retreats that when we um, sometimes we have an image that to our usual habitual thinking is alarming or disturbing or violent or it's like this can't be right or it uh, feels like sexually inappropriate or whatever it is or grandiose or this or that. And um, sometimes what we need to do is can I just summon a little, a grain of trust here. A grain of trust to assume that there is some deeper soul intelligence working through this image that I don't understand, that to conventional thinking feels perhaps pathological or um, weird or or whatever it is, or just not very interesting um, and kind of a bit boring or whatever. Just a grain of trust. And if I can drop that grain of trust into the mix, into the imaginal constellation, then we start to see the dependent arising of images. Um, it's the same with, with dreams, etc. I've been through all this before in other retreats. You actually see that the trust starts allowing something different to happen if the image is um, locked or, or uh, stuck or, or whatever it is. 
Sometimes the image itself transforms just through the trust. The relationship with the image, uh, imaginal figure transforms, and how that imaginal figure relates to us or acts towards us might might um, be transformed through the introduction. Just a little bit of trust, because the whole thing is a, is a dependent origination, is a dynamic, um, completely in, interacting system of elements. Uh, We see also in terms of dependent rising, we see um, a stance of distrust, say, towards an imaginal figure or towards a perception. Um, it implies and actually builds, it fabricates, the very stance of distrust and perhaps fear um, fabricates a self-reification. Um, and with the self-reification, it's... it's harder for the self to become imaginal, and get an imaginal sense of self at that point, self become image. So the distrust already implies a certain self-reification, and it um, fabricates, it leads to a kind of self-reification which blocks how much the um, imaginal perception can um, uh, spread to and subsume the self, and, and kind of render pliable and flexible and dynamic, the whole imaginal constellation. I mean, again, similar to what we said with humility and bowing and, and the rest of it, and that the, the trust that we're talking about here, um, it will allow, just a little bit of trust, again, independent arising, we see um, there's a, a decrease of reification with that. And it actually needs that. If we're taking the self too too rarefied, then trust is not possible. But the kind of trust we're talking about is not like we might tend to think. You know, here's this. Um, I'm really in a dangerous situation. This person is offering help, but they might be a bad person. Can I trust them or, or whatever? And and in that kind, of, if that were a real life situation, we'd be it would all be very rarefied and. And the whole sense of who's trusting would be very rarefied. The trust we're talking about with imaginal practice and with sensing the soul is is a lot less. The sense of the self that's doing the trusting is is already a lot less rarefied, as is the object of the trust. Um, but trust is related to a sense of value, which again we could pull that out as a, a separate element of our um, of our list. I don't think I have, but um, we could say so. I trust something because I sense there's a treasure here. This image that looks so uninteresting, or so impoverished, or so crazy, or pathological. I don't get it, but I just. And, and with experience, this comes more and more. I, I trust there's an intelligence here that I don't understand. I trust there's a treasure here that I don't understand. I trust there's a deep value here that I don't quite get yet. And if I can enter into the right relationship, maybe that will become apparent. Uh, there's a relationship between uh, sensing the soul and the sense of value. Anyway, but I may go into that later, so let's leave that for now. Sometimes what happens with images is, for instance, we might have a sense of, um, 
could give examples, but I won't because I haven't asked for permission yet. So um, we have a sense of an image and some some uh, clearly good beings in the image, and we're feeling nurtured by that, and that's really helpful. And then perhaps at some point, some um, other uh, characters come into the image, and they seem to be destroying or attacking or wiping out uh, what we thought were the good guys, and clearly they must be the bad guys. And so one one option there in terms of magical practice is actually to kind of intervene and support the good guys imaginally against the, the bad guys, um, so to speak. But uh, it may also be that we, we, there may again be a deeper intelligence working. So what seems problematic or seems perhaps dark, maybe something else is happening. Something is moving to another level. And what seems like um, purely dark or unremittingly um, pathological may have a deeper intelligence to it and a deeper kind of wisdom and a deeper kind of necessity to it. Uh, So what if I just um, move more back into a mode of kind of witnessing that, let's say, destruction of the apparently good guys by the apparently bad guys in the image. And I witness that, and I resonate with it, and I feel the pathos of it, and I sense in the soul what that does, and I sense in the energy body what that does. Again, we can really use the sense of um, the energy body being aligned, energized, opened, harmonized. This is a very, very good indicator that we're on the right track. My mind doesn't get this. It was all very nice with the good guys. Now the bad guys have come, and they're kind of taking over from the good guys. Somehow my energy body just is is getting more harmonized and more open as that happens. I can trust it, even if my mind doesn't get it. You understand? Um, Or sometimes there are kind of, if you like deeper than just the mind's sort of superficial, conventional objections and fears, there's a sense of the soul-making and the resonances and the meaningfulness. And we don't completely understand it, but it feels somehow right. It's touching us and resonating with the soul deeply. Okay, last one for now. Uh, I think it's number 11 on our list, but again, depends how you count. Um, Duty. Again, I mentioned it before, and again, it's something that I've talked, I think, quite a bit about. Um, certainly on that retreat, the path to the path of the imaginal. I'm not sure if other times, but to me, this is really important as well. It's another aspect of the imaginal constellation, um, or, and indeed of any soul-making experience—a sense of duty um, that the soul feels. It has a duty. It's not always clear what that duty is or how it should manifest. I've been through all this before. Whether it needs to be literal, whether it needs to be concretized, whether it needs to be um, an obvious translation or something much more subtle, whether it needs to be just purely internal, in through the reverence, through the bowing, for instance, um, through the respect and humility. Um, so I'm not going to go into that again, but I, I will point out now that, as I said, it's always an aspect of uh, the relationship with the imaginal um, object, the imaginal figure, and indeed of any soul-making experience. So even, for instance, when 
um, what's happening as to constitute a soul-making experience is not so much an image, but just an idea or a framework that has expanded. Our whole logos or conceptual framework, or just an individual idea, we have a new idea, and it's sort of we can feel um, the importance of it. It's new. Something's expanded in my whole conceptual framework just by the introduction of this new idea. It might be something about anything, about the cosmos or about the nature of God or the nature of self or soul or empty, whatever. And, um, or it might be uh, ex- the expansion into a new way of looking. It might be even the perception of, of a kind of a level of oneness that um, is relatively new as an expansion for me or a state of consciousness, for example, a jhana that's relatively new. But when it feels soul-making, somehow, and often vaguely, often vaguely, we feel at some level a sense of duty, for instance, to explore it further, to consolidate it. So if I've perceived that oneness, there's, there's some, somewhere in the being there's a sense of like, I need, to, I need to go into this more, I need to open to it more, I need to, uh, it, it's, I've got a duty to kind of um, consolidate it, make it part of my life, let it or support it to actually influence and guide or undergird my everyday life, my choices, my values. And what would it be for this, um, this new idea? this new conceptual framework, this new way of looking, this new perception of um, whatever it is, cosmic oneness of some kind, or, or just this state, this jhana that I've glimpsed, this remarkable state, whatever it is, the third jhana, it's, it's utterly remarkable. And, and somehow, what does it imply about my life? What does it imply about how to live, and what to choose, and what's important, and what's valuable? And how can I bring that in so that it really flows in and informs and supports and grounds my my life, my existence, my orientation? Somehow I feel that we vaguely, even when there's no obvious image involved, when there's soul-making involved, in any way, it's, more, some, it's different with imaginal figures, but it's still the same, there's some kind of duty that we feel, at the very least not to forget it. At the very least not to forget it. So again, I would say that's a, an aspect, an element, a node of the um, imaginal relationship. Again, more of the subjective pole. There may be also an objective correlate or uh, a correlate in the, in the imaginal object, in the imaginal figure. But let's stop there. <laughs>